Let me open in prayer. Our God, I thank you for this time together. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make it profitable, that you would be honored, that we would rejoice in you, that we would have minds that would, uh, that would be sharpened, that we would understand the world as you have made it. God, we need your grace for this. Amen. There we go. There's the slide. So if you have a particular topic that you don't see, uh, haven't, haven't seen in the, the uh, table of contents, then please, I would ask, put it up there, and then you can vote on other people's uh, opinions. You don't have to put in your ID. You don't have to put, identify yourself. So you can do this completely anonymously. If there's a topic that you really think that ought to be um, covered, then please go ahead and, and uh, take a snap and give me your thoughts. I, I would deprise them. So in week one, we talked about, by way of brief summary, the priority of the gospel to shape us, our views, and our attitudes, the impact of the gospel, and how it drives us to pursue the, to pursue the knowledge and affection for God. Biggest priorities. The impact of the gospel to drive our love, our humility, and interaction with others. Week two, we covered the Christian worldview, viewing the world in light of God's self-revelation. Uh, this view validates reality and our lived experiences, unlike non-Christian worldviews that do not validate our lived experiences, and we talked about that. The outcome of this view is that we find it is the only foundation for logic, science, beauty, all mental uh, endeavors, all uh, academic endeavors. What is the impact of that, of that view? Joy and ultimate fulfillment. That Christ is Lord over all creation and over all endeavors. The next week, week three, we talked about competing worldviews. They are at war with reality and at war with our lived experiences. The outcome, it destroys the foundation for logic, science, beauty, and morality, it leads to chaos, complete subjectivity, and the impact is meaningless and despair. These are some audacious claims I'm making, I realize. So again, feedback, either personally, come talk to me, and we can talk about this. Now, you're going to say, Dale, hold it. I just spoke to someone who's not a Christian the other week, and they, were, they, they made sense on this part and this part, and they said the sky was blue, and they said theft is wrong. Well, that's because every worldview has to borrow intellectual capital from, from Christianity to even be coherent. So our recap and plan. First, again, I think it's worth reviewing. What is the goal? The primary goal that we should honor and rejoice. It's not just a sterile honoring of some far-off despot. It's a rejoicing in the God that we have. So we would rejoice in God as our creator, sustainer, judge, redeemer, and in the good news of his kingdom. Secondly, that we would prioritize the gospel in our talking with others. So what's, what's our plan? That we would consider how we come to our political positions. So... Let's just say over the last few weeks, you have come to an agreement that the Christian worldview must be the foundation for all, and all of our endeavors. Does that mean that you get 50 Christians in a room, we're going to have complete uniformity and understanding on political issues? 
is, is that going to occur? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. No, that will not occur. So with this, I want to go into a bit of a, of a story, a parable, a, a real-life parable. Uh, back in the mid-90s, I got disillusioned with politics as it was couched at that time with two predominant parties, and I went into third-party politics. This was an outspokenly Christian conservative party because as a believer, I am concerned about what does it mean to love my neighbor? And I got involved, and I wanted to pursue that, that end. So I wanted to follow my conscience. I, believe it or not, I became the county chair for this very tiny party. It wasn't difficult, very tiny party. And I went off to the state convention. And here in the state convention, I don't know, maybe 200 people, which is a good showing for a small third party. But I was at the, 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 the banquet uh, dinner, that was the, the, the chief banquet talking about all of our great things. And here was a large round table. And around it sat me, two people here having a conversation, two people here having a conversation, two people here having a conversation. And these pairs obviously knew each other and were talking excitedly to each other about the opportunity with this third party. And I turned to one, one I, I, I joined the conversation for, for two of the people and they said, we're so glad for this party. We really need to institute the mosaic death penalty for idolatry. We need to institute the death penalty for, for, for uh, adultery. Uh, all, all the death penalties we need to institute. And I, I thought, wow, I, in the direction you're going, I'm not going that direction. And it was, it was eerie because then I turned to the next, okay, I thought maybe this is an outlier. Is this an outlier? Maybe, perhaps this is an outlier. I turned to the next people, entered their conversation, and they, and they said, interestingly enough, so excited to be a part of this party. We just need everybody to realize that America is the Christian nation. We are God's chosen people. We are under covenant with God. We are, God um, America is a Christian nation. And I thought, Wow, I'm, I'm not there either. Then the next, the next two people, I went over there and joined their conversation. They said, we're so glad for this party. We need, to have a, we need to have a political party that puts the nation of Israel first above everything else because they are God's people. And I sat there a little bit disillusioned, but also waking up to the fact that I was not walking in the same direction as this party, and the party wasn't walking in the same direction with itself. Which raises a good question. So, my notes. So, it raises a good question about the things that are upstream. There, there were, what was the issue? It wasn't worldview. Everybody believed in a Christian worldview who was at this particular uh, dining banquet. What was the underlying issue that was making such crazy differences? It was the upstream theology that they didn't even realize they held to. And I talked to them. I said, so you, you have this view. Why do you hold it? And they had some, some ideas. But what's the point of today is to provoke you and me into considering not only the worldview presuppositions we have, but what are the theological presuppositions? So we talked about worldview as upstream of culture. 
If you have an atheistic worldview, then that's gonna impact your view of what culture should be like. And that's gonna impact what politics should be like. If people are just a conglomeration of atoms, I know I've been using that a couple times, then you know what, putting people in the gulag because they have bad views against the state is pretty reasonable. So that's the impact of worldview. So what's, what's the, the point for this conversation is theology has an impact. Ideas have an impact. Theology is upstream of culture. And everybody has a theology. You can say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm an agnostic. You have a theology you're putting into place. So theology being upstream of culture and culture upstream of politics. So if you have a cultural view, theft is wrong, then you're gonna implement it into law. So with this, what I want to do is talk a little bit about um, some of the things that are, I wanna back up and just talk not knowing where we all are. Let me, def let me define some topics here. Theology. What is theology? Theology, when I talk about theology being upstream, I used to be in the mindset when I was a very young Christian is that theology is that stuff that people make up in isolated seminaries that gets in the way of me being able to worship Jesus. It's all the man-made stuff. What is theology? Theology is simply the study of what God reveals about himself through the Bible. So we're there. But that knowledge doesn't stay by itself. Truly knowing more about God will produce love, devotion, and affection. Well, hold it. Our, our lived experience in, this, in our culture, there's a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge of God, but there's not a lot of love. A true knowledge of God will bring us to humility, to love, and affection for him. And of course, I, like yourself, I need to grow in that humility and love. And that's where we come to our, our, our Redeemer and, and ask for, for forgiveness when we lack love and pursue that. So moving on. So biblical theology, I, I use the term up above, biblical theology and upstream issues. Theology can be understood in two kind of general camps that are, that are complementary. Biblical theology seeks to understand the question about how any particular text relates to the whole, to understand the story of the Bible when viewed as a whole. So there's a larger story going on that the people of that table didn't quite, in my estimate, humble estimation, didn't quite understand that they were um, addressing. So there's biblical theology, Understanding the parts from the picture of the whole, then there's something called systematic theology, which is to understand what the Bible says about a particular topic. All right, so moving on to some, some, some I would say, foundational issues about understanding and approaching the Bible. And, and you're saying, Dale, why are we going over theology? Why are we going over theology when we're talking about politics? Again, your theology drives culture, drives politics. Dan, please. Great point. Uh, so when I say biblical theology, it's more than simply saying Bible theology that comes from the Bible. It's understanding how a particular topic relates to the whole of the Bible. If I come to a position that, you know what, 
uh, salvation really is of works because of this one verse that I'm taking out of context. Oh, hold it. There's the whole witness of the scripture that I need to address. So there's, now, now I get to some underlying assumptions here. Progressive revelation, the later sections of the Bible contain a fuller revelation of God than earlier sections. This is Luke 24, 17. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, being Christ, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, scriptures concerning himself. There was something that, that was said earlier in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that was revealed to a greater degree in the New Testament. Progressive, progressive revelation in that regard. So when you think progressive, we're not talking political. There's, it's not political progressivism. It's understanding that there's a progress in revelation. Interpreting the Old Testament in light of the new, this will impact your politics, believe it or not. Jesus and his apostles teach us how to do exegesis. We follow him in life and, and we follow him in hermeneutics. He said what the whole scriptures was. He said that the whole scripture was talking about him. The Old Testament is we understand it by the light of the New Testament. Long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke to us by His Son and has appointed Him to be the heir of all things, through whom He has also created the world. Virtually every page of the New Testament shows the Old Testament pointed forward to and is now fulfilled in Jesus. So, if a rigid grammatical historical hermeneutic of the Old Testament puts an interpreter at odds with God-breathed Christ-centered hermeneutic as the authoritative apostles who learned from their king, we need to go back to the drawing board. In that instance, our hermeneutic has to, be, has to have gone astray and not... Uh, not that of the apostles, Blake White. What's a hermeneutic? What do I mean by that? It's another term I'm throwing around. How we interpret the scriptures. How do we look at them? So these things bring us, as all do scriptures, that Christ is the center of God's plan. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known and this was according to God's eternal purpose that is now realized in Christ Jesus. Ephesians, now from 2 Corinthians. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. Whoa, there's a lot of things going on in the Old Testament. Are, are we talking about that Christ is the yes and amen to those things? So this brings us... Any questions there as I hurtle through this? This brings us to a question about there is an overarching issue. The main way that God has chosen to reveal his one plan is through a number of covenants mentioned in the scriptures culminating in Christ in the new covenant. So Christ is the center. He is the theme. And, and God has used in the scripture covenants to communicate this to us. Again, You'll see my point as at the end of this, if I can get there, um, as to how this is relevant to our politics. What is a covenant? It's a solemn and formal agreement between two parties to do something or not do something. Think of a contract, think of a treaty, something like that. 
Biblically, the word, uh, the word and concept is used to refer to a solemn agreement between God and his intended object. Now, that object could be the earth. It could be man as a whole. It could be uh, the King David. It could be Israel. It could be the redeemed. A biblical covenant will have terms. If you do this, I will do this. Ramifications. If you don't do this, this will happen. If you do do this, this will happen. And outcomes, if you obey, if you obey the, the terms of the covenant, this is Exodus 19, then you will be the outcome. So that's, that's what a covenant is. Let's go to the Noahic covenant. I'm going to go through the, the, the covenants as they are mentioned within the scripture. The Noahic covenant preserves humanity for the fulfillment of God's plan through Christ in the new covenant. Noah be, being saved, this was to fulfill, this was part of God's plan to fulfill his plan in Christ. And praise God for this. Praise God for this. Next, there's the Abrahamic covenant, and I have the verses down below. So I'm not going to read these verses. I'm just, and the notes will be available online. If I provoke you with any one of these particular topics and you say, Dale, you're going off the rails here my simple request is to look them up and let's have a conversation. Consider these things. The, so what was the nature of the Abrahamic covenant? The physical promises from God to Abraham for an offspring, a nation, a land, and a blessing. All those things are there in Genesis 12. And ultimately find their fulfillment spiritually in Jesus Christ and those in Christ in the new covenant. Again, we're, we're pointing to, to Christ. This was an unconditional covenant. So let me, I, let me touch upon that. There's, there's a conditional covenant. So let's say, I will do this if you do this. So there's something you have to do. That's a conditional covenant. Or I can say, son, I'm going to give you a piece of pie. And there's nothing you have to do. That's an unconditional agreement. This Abrahamic agreement that God made with Abraham was unconditional. It was a promise God was making to Abraham. It is not as though the word of God had failed for not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all the children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. I added the word physical. But through Isaac, your offspring will be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. The children of promise. Galatians 4. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. That promise to, to Abraham? Through our belief in Jesus Christ, we are, are engrafted into that true Israel. There's the Mosaic Covenant. And a lot of the confusion that, I, that was around that table stems from, from their confusion around the nature of the Mosaic Covenant. The Old Testament nation of Israel, the priesthood, the prophets, the kings, the temple, the law written on stone, the sacrifices, the promise of physical blessing, the promise of nationhood, the, uh, the physical conflict, the covenant itself, and all other elements of the covenant were typological in nature. That's a big word. What, what do I mean by typological? It was a shadow pointing to a reality. So 
if you look here, here's my shadow. And if I had, if I had, a, a, if I had a grandson who was nine years old, and he hadn't seen me for five years, he wouldn't run up and say, Grandpa, and run to that shadow. That shadow is pointing to a greater reality. That Mosaic covenant in its nature was a shadow pointing to a greater reality. The purpose of that covenant was to reveal sin, revealing the need for Redeemer, and finding fulfillment in Jesus Christ and those in Christ through, again, the new covenant. Studying the Mosaic covenant should bring us to a sense of worship and gratitude. Praise God for, for what this points that we have in Christ. We have a king, a prophet, and a priest. We have a lamb who was slain for us. Where do we learn these things? I, I see that I'm, I'm a, a sinner in need of redemption. That's from the Mosaic covenant. But from this, from the Mosaic Covenant, there are a couple things that, that are important that we can also derive that the Mosaic Covenant was temporary by, by divine design. The Mosaic Covenant was a ministry of death that, that, was, that, that was done away with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. With the coming of the new covenant, he, Christ, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. 2 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 8. So this covenant is fading away. It's not a permanent covenant. Any questions? Well, um, maybe no questions or maybe a thousand questions. I'm not sure, but... Yes, question. They are all, they all pointed and, are, and find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Does that answer your question? Yes, because the new covenant had, had, at that point in that conversation, had the new covenant been inaugurated, had the new covenant, had, has, had, had the lamb been slain, these were Jews who were, who were boasting in the law. They were boasting that they were children of Abraham. And yet they, they didn't keep, they, they boasted in it, but they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't keep it. So in that way, he says, if you're going to stand in the law, then you need to keep the whole thing. And they were hypocrites. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Let's have lunch over that one because I need to move on. But it's a valuable question as to what do we do with tithing? It's a great question. Um, and I think I'll answer it with the very next point. <laughs> so let me, let me uh, quote just a part of this. Down at, the, down at the bottom. For if what was being brought to an end... You read that verse as talking about the covenant. If that which, which brought to an end came with glory, and 
The Mosaic, came, the Mosaic covenant on Mount Sinai came with thundering and people shook. It came with glory. It did come with glory. How much more the permanent have glory? The Mosaic pointed to the beauty of the new covenant. So this is where I think perhaps I'll answer your question, maybe not satisfactorily at this point, that the Mosaic covenant was temporary and it was also a unit. All of the Mosaic law stands together for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. When the Mosaic covenant was made obsolete, so too was the law of the covenant. That law is not binding upon the Christian, both uh, both merely pointed to a greater reality. And I know I'm going against some paradigms here. But stick with me. The, the old covenant law was a unit. It was a package deal. Another way to state this was that the law is bound up with the covenant in which it was given. One cannot separate the commands of the covenant to which they belong, Blake White. So there is this covenant that that God made with Israel. Um, it was temporary pointing to Christ and that law, 2 Corinthians 3, what was the purpose of that law? It was the killing letter. It was uh, the, the, the ministry of condemnation pointing to Christ. So again, I'm not hoping that I'm persuading anybody from, from any disagreement, but merely provoking more conversation and thought. The old covenant law as a unit, it is a package deal. Another way to state this is that the law is bound up. Oh, sorry, that's a duplicate. So let me come quickly to the Davidic law. God promises a descendant of Abraham to reign on the throne over the, over the people of God. That was in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 29. This is fulfilled in Jesus Christ as the king of kings over all creation in the new covenant. This was an unconditional covenant. Aside from, now, aside from the glory that our Redeemer, the person who has called us our brother, this Redeemer is king. But, and this is a small aside that I think should drive us to a sense of worship. Those in Christ will reign with him, and we will be co-heirs with him. Not only is Christ king, but me, a rebel, I'm going to be an heir and, a, and a, uh, we will co-reign with him. Again, praise God for this. That doesn't have explicit political um, uh, impact, but I wanted to point that out. That's a reason for gratitude and a sense of awe. The new covenant Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king, the lamb, the media of the new covenant, the everlasting covenant through his own blood, being enacted upon better promises, provides only blessings to those under it. Those promises include justification, regeneration, and adoption into the eternal sonship and fellowship with God. There's reason for absolute worship and gratitude here. This everlasting covenant has thus brought to realization all that was anticipated in the covenants made with Abraham, Moses, and David. This is an unconditional co covenant. Praise God for that. I'm trying to move along here. All right. So that was some, some, a brief discussion about biblical theology and the impact of understanding. Looking briefly at the covenants, 
what in the world does this have to do with politics? Again, our worldview drives our politics, our theology drives politics. The kingdom of God. Under the new covenant, the kingdom of God is the redemptive rule or reign of, of God exercised by King Jesus. Let me catch up here. The good news of the kingdom, the gospel is central. I would point you back to the gospel as we discussed it in, in uh, week one. God changing hearts and placing the law on the hearts of, and consciences of those in Christ is central to the kingdom. Churches that seek to affirm the authority of scripture and the importance of the gospel are fundamental part of this kingdom. Now, that's to distinguish because you say, all right, you go out in the street and you have a conversation, oh, the church. Well, hold it, you need to define your terms with the people you're talking with. You need to ask questions. If I say the church, then in someone else's mind, you're going to be saying, oh, modern Christendom that says that just Jesus is fine and, and on all other opinions, he's, God's irrelevant. God's just a spiritual thing. No, when, when we talk about the kingdom of God and when I talk about the church, it's the, the, the church that are faithful to believe in the gospel, the authority of scripture. So that's the kingdom of God. Viewing how we view the kingdom of God is derived from our theology, our biblical theology. A holy nation. There was some confusion around that table about what the holy nation is. Israel was promised to be a holy nation. Again, read it, Exodus 19. The, the words to Israel at that time were, if you obey then the rest follows. If you obey. However, in the new covenant, those in Christ are, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's only one nation that is in that today is in covenant with God, and that is Christ's body. That impacts politics. Our, downstream, our upstream theology impacts what we think about things. Another impact, and I'm not assuming that this list that I have here is at all comprehensive. It's, it's just a list of a few things that, to show you the impact of how theology impacts culture politics. Weapons of the kingdom. Under, first, if we talk about weapons within kingdoms, under the Mosaic Covenant, physical weapons were used to defend and extend the kingdom of Israel and execute idolaters. What was the point of that? It pointed to a greater spiritual reality to come. Under the New Covenant, we wield the armor of God. What, what is the armor of God? It's a metaphor for the gospel. What's the gospel? There's good news. Jesus died for, for rebels. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to defend and extend the kingdom of God and convert idolaters. If you read what is a De Deuteronomy 13, fathers are commanded, if your daughter brings in uh, someone from a Moabite, I believe, if you read that passage, 
fathers are commanded to kill this idolater that comes into their house. Well, before Christ, I was an idolater. We were all idolaters. Praise God that there's a change in covenants here. So if, if my daughter comes to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about dating this guy, uh, should I execute him or should I pray that God would show mercy and convert? There is a change here. And this has impacts, this has implications for what the state should do. So hold it, you want theocracy? That means you're gonna kill all the people? No, there's a change that their question doesn't un understand. Under the new covenant, uh, uh, um, as I mentioned, um, we are given different weapons. Those physical weapons are different under the new covenant. The state and the Mosaic law. So I'll develop, I just said the word state and I'll develop it later. But are we to institute the Mosaic law if, if all of us got together and we became the legislature of the United States and we say, let's put in the, should we put in the Mosaic, the, the, the laws of, of Israel? The Mosaic law, again, was typological. The law itself, the covenant was typological. It pointed to greater reality. The, the law itself, the nature of it was to point out sin. And therefore, it was temporary in nature. And this covenant pointed to Christ. So if I don't quite understand that, <clears throat> if I don't understand this, this component of, of theology, how's it going to impact? I might say, you know what? We need to reinstitute the death penalty for rebellious children. That's what really needs to happen. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Thank you, Bethann. It's recorded in the notes now. The, the law was a unit. Uh, it, was a, it was a whole in the covenant. It was there for, for the purpose of showing things about the coming Redeemer. The intent was not to reduplicate those laws in any other country. They were made for Israel for a purpose. Again, otherwise, I, I say, if, if you want to take up, uh, one moment, Brett, if you want to take up uh, instituting saying that we have to institute some part of those laws, then the challenge is, well, how come we're not instituting that, that uh, passage in Deuteronomy where we're told to, to slay the idolater? Brett, you had a question. Great. That's a great segue for next week. Yeah, absolutely. Is, let me just get to your point. Is the concept of state legitimate? Is it a legitimate authority? Yes, absolutely. Next would be persuasion, not compulsion. Again, some of these points kind of bleed in from one to the next. 
The means of the kingdom of God was, is not by compulsion, but rather persuasion. Does it sound a little, sounds a little. So we are not to wield swords to go out and convert people to Christianity. We, persu- we, uh, we give them our words and our life, and the Holy Spirit is our ultimate weapon. He, will, he is the means of conversion. The Holy Spirit will illumine far better than a sword. We can then make this statement. I'm making a bit of a deduction here. That we can then make the statement that freedom of speech is a thoroughly Christian concept. This is not just a secular concept. I stake my claim here. Based upon this, freedom of speech is a Christian concept. What is freedom of speech? <clears throat> Ability to say things that other people disagree with. Hold it. You mean even someone who blasphemes? Brothers, before I came to Christ, my every assumption was a blaspheme. So uh, this freedom of speech should be protected by the state. Now, again, I'm saying things that I realize that, that there may be some disagreement upon. This directly, so this freedom of speech also directly impacts other things that we might consider rights. The right to assemble. We can come here freely in this country. If we were in Iran or a different country, that freedom may not present itself, but the state should honor the freedom of the speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of association. That means I'm not forced to do things with people with whom I don't want to do things. We're all here freely. And praise God for that. And praise God for that. So we've, hopefully, I've, I've hopefully taken some pains to, to bring you to the thought about how authority, how, how theology shapes uh, your views on politics. And very briefly here, now let's talk about the church, the state, and authority. In week two, we raised the topic of authority within the Christian worldview. And this is one of the most important issues. Is there an authority And certainly, as we become parents, this is one of the paramount things we need, to, we need to address. As our baby comes into the world, they need to know that there is an authority structure in the world, and they're not it. That's an important thing for a baby to realize. Really important. Or otherwise, they're going to be shipwrecked in their life. Then we went on to talk about, all right, there is authority that God has revealed. And what is the ultimate authority? The ultimate authority is Jesus Christ being king of kings. Christ's authority is legitimate, being morally right. It is absolute, never subject to a higher authority. The nations may rage against him now. American judges and and Chinese presidents might deny his very existence, yet God's future judgment over both ruled and ruler alike demonstrates his rule in the present. Jonathan Lehman. Matthew 28, all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. I don't understand all the ways that Christ is using his authority, but what does that do for us? Does the two-year-old understand all the decisions his parents will make? No. But our loving Father has all authority. There is a place for trust 
and confidence and peace in the midst of this crazy political environment. All other authorities are delegated. For there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Romans 13. There we go. So let's talk about a few of those authorities right now. We could say that there is a right spot for understanding individual authority. As individuals, we, we possess, uh, we are responsible and will give an account to God for our words, thoughts, and actions. Again, please look up these scriptures. It's, it's a, a point of worship to, to look through these. It brings you to your need. I'm responsible for these things. Thank God I have an intercessor, a redeemer. There's a concept of the authority of, the, of that which is the family. The husband serves as head of his wife who serves as his suitable helper. Together as parents, they are called to bring their children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The children are called to honor and respect their parents in the Lord. The family is the biblical source of welfare, inheritance, and support. The family also has responsibilities for health, provision, and the education of their parents and for the care of their elderly parents. These are theological statements. You know what else they are? They sound very political. There's something to be had here. What's the next authorities? We have the individual, we have the family. Next, we have the church. Christ is the Lord over the church, and he, and he gifts the church with leaders who give an account to Christ for how they lead. The church is given a mandate to preach the truth of God's word, to celebrate the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper, to shepherd the flock as they make disciples of the nations, and teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. There is authority within in the church. It's delegated from the chief shepherd, and it's legitimate. Next, we talk about the state. Is the state legitimate? The state or civil government is to be God's servant who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That is, civil magistrates are to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. The civil government is to protect our God-given rights. More later about what those rights are. So God has set responsibilities and jurisdictions over each of these areas of authority. Their roles are specific and are not to be confused. Am I to look to the state to, in, to raise my child? There's always a worldview in play here. There's always a religious faith. So regarding the state, now this is in regards to, all right, what's, let me just talk briefly about the interplay between the, what's the, the relationship, and it should be a, a healthy relationship between the church and the state. God has given the power of the sword to governments and the power of the keys uh, to the churches. He intends for them to work separately, but cooperatively toward the greater end of worship. Governments should employ the sword in order to protect life, enable the cultural mandate, and provide a platform for the work of the church. Churches should exercise the keys of the kingdom in order to testify to King Jesus, his message, and his people. 
they are witnesses of the, of the age to come. To summarize the relationship between the church and the state, in a sentence, we would say, God has given the power of the sword to governments and the power of the keys to the churches, and he intends them to work separately but cooperatively. Jonathan Lehman. So this has played out very differently throughout church history. So talking about the relationship of the church and the state is something that, because of time, I'll pick up next week. Let me quickly come here. But So by way of resources, I, I've said some things about the, uh, upstream theology and biblical theology, and I would commend to you The Law of Christ by Charles Leitner and What is New Covenant Theology and Introduction by Blake White. These, um, the, the one by Blake White is very small. It's a primer. It would probably take you perhaps an hour to read. It's small. The other one, uh, larger, it would take you more than, an, uh, it, it would take some while to go through. However, it brings you, and I can say this by way of my own personal testimony, for whatever that's worth, that it is theological, but at every point it is extremely devotional and brings you to a sense of worship for what we have in Christ. The Political Church, a local assembly as ambassador of Christ's rule by Jonathan Lehman. Uh, this came to me late in the game as, uh, as a resource, as did Political Visions and, and Illusions, a survey of Christian critique of contemporary ideologies. That bottom one gets a lot into, into the Christian worldview and how it competes with non-Christian worldviews as it applies to the state. And, and we spent the last two weeks talking about worldview. And I think there's a lot of value to this book if you want to dig that way. Wayne Grudem has a book that is a sizable tome, uh, but is a good resource. It is Politics According to the Bible. That's a good resource. And to reiterate, oh, and to <clears throat> talk about, uh, if you want to delve into the concept about how previous uh, cultures have wrongly applied a view of the state, I would commend to you Reformers and the Stepchildren, this gets into ways in which uh, there was persecution because of people's faith. And I would make, I owe much to the reformers. I owe much to the reformers. We all owe much to the reformers. But to the degree that they persecuted people because of views, um, I would say that they stand in error. Again, not assuming that I'm persuading anybody in this moment, but trying to provoke a conversation. From last week, in talking with people, I would commend uh, Tactics by Greg Kokel. And this lower one, there are five YouTube videos that are only five minutes long. How to have a conversation. Very worth the while. Let me close in prayer. Our God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the fact that you rule over all. And as believers, you rule over all for our good. God, we, we pray that you would reveal that to us, that we would be, come to a sense of delight, of rejoicing in, in who you are, and by rejoicing, we would honor you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.